Listening to that reading from Jeremiah and the psalm that followed, I almost didn't want to get out of the pew. (laughs) So you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to preach on it. You know, later, later we'll have more Jeremiah, so maybe I'll just take the plunge and do it. Is there balm in Gilead? The whole hymn, of course, was written around that question. But today, I feel since the clergy are paid the big bucks, they need to preach on texts like the one from Luke's Gospel, which uh, even to me is somewhat baffling. And um, maybe we'll be able to say something about it that will be useful moving through the week. Before that, I want to say a little by sort of a didactic uh, part of the sermon, which has to do with the liturgy and the shape of the liturgy uh, in liturgical churches. Uh, When Constantine made Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire, the celebration of the Christian liturgy moved into the public buildings of the Roman Empire. And so they became rather large and rather elaborate affairs. And so part of the thing that had to happen in the Christian liturgy was we had to come in. So you developed something for coming in called the entrance rite. And the entrance rite involved getting all of the uh, choir and the acolytes and the clergy and everybody in and uh, into the sanctuary. And then the entrance rite concluded, just like we do here. Mark Noodles on the organ. We come down the aisle. We stop here. We have a, a penitential rite uh, most of the year. And then we go in and we conclude the entrance rite with what is called the collect of the day. C-O-L-L-E-C-T. So why don't you say collect? Well, we don't. We say collect because collecta in Latin means to gather the people, right? To collect our prayers, our individual prayers, into sort of one thematic prayer that starts us off in terms of helping our reflection. Because after all, the public liturgy is, at least in some fashion, prayer. So today... The opening collect was, Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among those things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, the usual conclusion of the prayer. Well, as it happens, that collect may have something to do with the gospel. Anxious about earthly things to love things heavenly. In the days when we had an annual lectionary, just one, the collect and the relationship between the readings was often very clear, but now that you have a three-year lectionary, and we have for many years, sometimes the collect doesn't always seem to fit. But I thought it did. So if you ever ask yourself the question, why do we read that prayer, and what does it have to do with the price of beans? It is a way of thematically focusing ourselves on what we're going to hear in the biblical witness. Look for those things and see if you can pick them out from from time to time. So today we have the reading from Luke. Uh, I've been a member of the Diocesan Finance Committee 
for nearly 10 years, and um, it's uh, penance that I have to do for the fact that I have an MBA in my murky past. And sometimes we have a Bible study before, or a little snippet that the chair of the finance committee likes to circulate or ask people to do, and so I use this gospel often. And all these corporate guys, you know, they'll sit there and they say, gee, I didn't know... I didn't know that was in there. I, you know, what does it mean? So I go, you know, like that sometimes. But it's an extraordinary passage. And I think it has something to do about right relationship with possessions. It may have something to do with the reflection on how Luke understood his own community and how we understand uh, uh, as Christian people seeking to be converted or reconverted all the time to allow the free play of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we live in relationship both as the community of faith we call church and in the wider world and in our livelihoods. How do we think about all of this stuff? And what sense can we make out of it? I think uh, this about Luke. Luke was a Gentile. His community was principally a Gentile community. He was a physician, which meant that even in the ancient Near East, he was in a certain stratum of of the social order that was uh, pretty good. And I suspect his community had a number of Gentile Christians who were... uh, You know, there is no middle class in the ancient Near East, but we're involved in things uh, uh, which could usefully be, say, trade or one thing and another. And the question came up for them, uh, living in about 85 or 90 AD, how then must we live? Because Jesus has not come again. And for Luke, that means that the church is part of the plan of God. And more to the point, Christian men and women have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. So how we live and what we do with our stuff, among other things, might be important. And so Jesus speaks a parable today. Luke, by the way, has more teachings by Jesus, parables, uh, activities that bear on the issue of social and economic justice, right relationship with the things that we have than any other gospel writer, just as because he is a physician, he is interested in Jesus' healings, and he has more healing stories than any other gospel writer. So he's concerned about these things. And in the tradition, oral and written prior to the gospel, he uses a lot of these examples about these issues, our own economic life and how we should live. He has Jesus tell the story of a uh, manager who managed a rich man's affairs, was a bad manager and it sounded like he was feathering his own nest, My grandfather would say, knocking down on the boss. 
And so he tells them that he's going to get fired, but he better settle up with all of, the, all of his clients now. So we have two examples of where he goes and he uh, has them uh, lower the amount they owe. The rich man, you would think, would be very upset about this, but he commends the manager for his shrewdness. And then he makes the extraordinary comment that the uh, sons, something like the sons of this age, are more uh, apt at handling their affairs than the children of light. One thinks the converted, the people who are, you know, committed. How are we to make sense out of that? Here are some ways to think about this. First of all, it is entirely possible that the manager told the people that owed the rich man to pay him what they owed the rich man and not his commission. In the ancient Near East, this was a common practice. So he said, just pay the actual amount for the stuff and leave my commission off of this. Remember, uh, one of the reasons, that in every age they are, but one of the reasons tax collectors were so reviled in the ancient Near East was that they were people from their, the constituency in the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire controlled, Palestine, let's say. They were, let's say, Jews who were given Roman citizenship, a substantial benefit, and told, here is the tax that you collect. This is what you must give to us. If you collect anything beyond that, you keep it. It's yours to have. You know, people in the restaurant business sometimes uh, realize that one of the places money can just flow out of the business real fast is at the bar. So they'll tell the bartender, I want you to pour $25 out of every bottle. If you pour $32 out of that bottle, you can keep the money. Either that or I'll buy a new car every year. But you keep track of that. So he's commended for his shrewdness. And here's why. The dishonest manager wants to be welcome into the people's homes that he knows. To have his friends. He wants to preserve his network. And so he operates on a shrewd basis. The word in the Greek text for shrewd means prudent. Somebody in the ancient Near East who has a Hellenistic background and listens prudent, they go, oh, Aristotle, one of the virtues, prudence. What is prudence? Prudence is practical wisdom. How do you live? How do you commend this to other people? Now, if he took his commission off, that's not illegal or corrupt. If he cheated his... his Master, that is. So we don't know. 
The fact is, is that we also don't know that he kept his job. He lost his job. Jesus may be speaking about the fact that if you, as a committed follower of me, are so caught up in your idealism that you are incapable of being able to live on the day-to-day basis and to make a livelihood for yourself, you may need to bring some balance into the way in which you do things. I think Luke and his community were struggling with this. Does Christianity call you to renounce all your possessions? Do you need to live a life of total renunciation in order to be faithful? This debate has been going on in Christianity since the jump. One of the most successful religious orders in the history of the Christian church, the Franciscans, were based on a complete life of renunciation as being necessary for your personal salvation and necessary to model the values of the kingdom of God to others and necessary to bank souls home to God. And I think Luke and his community came to another conclusion. And the conclusion was this. Most of us cannot or will not live lives of complete renunciation. So I guess with the Holy Spirit present to us, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, we have got to develop a right relationship with our stuff. You know, this is very hard to talk about in this culture that we live in because there is a lot of neat stuff. And more to the point, if you completely let go of your stuff and everybody lets go of their stuff, what about all the people who are making and servicing the stuff who earn their livelihood? Right? Some of us. You know, I have a business background in my murky past. I was uh, raised in a family business. You know? What are you going to do? So the people who blithely say, we are just going to get rid of this stuff. Some people learn things, of course, and in the Silicon Valley, there's a whole lot of neat stuff that is being jettisoned by people who wish to simplify. And so there may be some bargains out there because somebody has had a momentary fit of idealism. (laughs) You know? How long can that be sustained? So the question is, how shrewd are you going to be about your stuff? How prudent are you going to be about your stuff? Is there a way, if there's any group in the world that should be idealistic, it's Christian men and women... They should believe that somehow, even in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we will be able to move at least one inch closer to a more godly way of living and relating, and that we'll have a more sensible attitude with regard to our stuff. We'll learn how to live in a way that is more compassionate and where we do the best for the most. I've always believed that, by the way, that was the American way to do the best for the most. It's not always held in high regard these days by many. 
you know. Somebody at the sermon discussion group at nine said something very good. There used to be a time when, you know, we, we uh, aspired to do things in vocations that were to some degree admired in the society and the, ta- the places where we lived. You know, being a college professor, a member of the clergy, and a, um, not an attorney anymore for sure, but a doctor, somebody like this, you know. Now, the levels of compensation for some of those things uh, at one time was not as great as it might be. Nowadays, I think a lot of people don't care about their reputation. They care about the money. So they don't care what people think of them. What they care about is how successful they are. So if there's any collateral damage... You know, it's the mainspring of human progress at work. Jesus said in today's parable that we have to have some kind of right relationship with our things. He said in the old translation, it said, you cannot serve God and mammon. We say wealth in the New Revised Standard Version. I'll tell you one of the reasons I like mammon better. But you know what? Nobody really knows what in the world mammon means. It's mentioned three times in the New Testament. In Matthew, once, and in this gospel. Some people think it might mean uh, stuff acquired by wicked means. Property acquired by wicked means or corrupt motives. That's a possible uh, interpretation of what it might mean. So we can think, is it stealing that's the, the, the wicked means? What are the, what are the ways in which we define what that means? I don't think we're agreed about that matter. And I think we need to think about how Christian men and women can be an instrument of getting greater clarity. So this gospel is a little bit about what prudence means in our economic life and how do we understand uh, moving away from an overweening idealism to some practical wisdom about how to use our resources. None of us are going to live lives of complete renunciation, nor should we. And I think Luke's community came to that conclusion a long time ago. And they said, we're going to reconcile ourselves to living in the midst of a certain ambiguity with regard to this. Most people uh, don't like to be uh, in a Christian community that holds up ambiguity. It's more comfortable not to be. But Anglican theology has always lived in yes and no at the same time and believed that that was the location for developing the prudence. You know, in the Greek text, the word that's used for prudence is the same word, is a derivative of the word that means faithful. So when you and I exercise prudence and cultivate practical wisdom, it is a species of faithfulness. I think that's why Aristotle thought it was a virtue. So this week, see if you can be an instrument for more shrewdness 
in your economic life, the exercise of prudence. Think about your relationship with your stuff. Uh, Enjoy the stuff. There's a lot of neat stuff. But, you know, the, the, the line between you owning the stuff and the stuff owning you is wafer thin. The Bishop of London in the Blitz in 1940 came out of his out of the bunker one morning and his house had been blown to smithereens. And he said, thank God I'm free at last. (laughs) So think about what all that means and how you can be an instrument for developing greater clarity in, in our culture. Amen.